there's like um, a thing online on like YouTube channels of people crinkling paper, popping those oh, bubble yeah. things. That's me. Yeah, and, and people are Driver like crazy. a million hits, a million views of people doing these very, dipping their hands in a bowl of marbles. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yes, I, there's a name for it. I, and, I, and of course. Of people who do that? Yes. Oh, no, it's, it's not a small thing. It's a huge thing. It's a thing on YouTube. Um, and, it's, and it's mostly women. I haven't seen men do it. And it's a very quiet room and kind of like, you know, with so much sex. Have some. No, and she'll, she'll go yeah. up and she'll do like. Yeah. Like, like, but really close, close to up. people? Yeah. No, no, right off the mic. Oh. <laughs> I have students that hum, you know, they're I would, online. I would do nothing else. Yeah. Right. We're in a lesson. And one of the students going. I'm like, please stop humming. You're right. Turn off your mic or It's stop a lesson humming. right now. Yeah. yeah so we're going to get, we'll, we'll get started here. Yeah, we don't want to be here until dark. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful afternoon. Yeah. I mean, yep. this is just perfect. Okay. I'm ready. All right. I'm Alan Winson, and this is Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. My co-host and I believe that the best conversations happen at your neighborhood bar. Well, we've been stuck here in the pandemic without our bars, but we found a bar in our neighborhood yeah. that has welcomed us to their outdoor patio, and here we are. Yes, we have. I am Rebecca McCain, and we are sitting outside at Ellington in the Park at West 105th in Riverside Park in the upper... Uh, well, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> We're on the upper level here. Okay. And it's really beautiful. In the it's upper really west nice. side of Manhattan. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a beer. Uh, founders all day. You're having a margarita. A margarita, with and sweet, it's very good. Sweet potatoes. I don't. I wish we had found this um, months ago. I don't know if it was opened. Oh, no. Oh, may, maybe it was Maybe wasn't. it was. I don't know. Yeah, Alina Larson, our producer, found it, and she said, why don't you do your podcast there, or our podcast there? Yeah. And here we are. And here we are. Back at a bar. Ellington at the park on 105th Street. Just You enter the park at 104th or 106th, then you walk down into the park, and it's at 105th. But it's not... Wait, is there another And there's another level down, down below. It's all level. the same restaurant. Oh, okay, okay. They do the cooking downstairs, bar downstairs, and they oh, bring okay. the stuff up here. I thought that was a small kitchen for such right. a big menu, that little kiosk yeah. over there. So it's downstairs. Permission from the park. Right, you had to get permission from the park, yeah. and we did. So we are talking today with the founder and head and hands-on laborer for MicroAid International, John Ross. So with that, and with the help of Wade Ripka's Eastern Blockheads Band, here we go. <laughs> with us today is our friend and Alan's lawn bowling buddy and the founder and head of MicroAid International. John Ross was with us for BCR number 36 at Vino Leventino, where we no longer record because the owner kicked Alan out several yeah. months ago. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, that's another story. It was. He wasn't very nice. No, he wasn't. I won't. I won't mention his name. But, but it's Vino Leventino. I'm still hurting from that. John, <laughs> welcome back to Bar Crawl Radio. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing okay under the circumstances. Um, I was uh, somewhat in uh, quarantine, uh, lockdown in California for the past six months, and I just made my way back to New York City. Right, and we were talking a little bit about that. You were in Malibu in a very nice situation. You got to play tennis, and yeah, it sounded it was lovely. Yeah, it sounded rough. 
Well, I have a very fortuitous life. As we discussed in the last Bar Crawl Radio you do. segment, you do. I seem to have a lot of luck and a lot of great friends and, and situations that just sort of open up for me. And this was one because I was in Mexico. I was uh, starting a job, starting a, a project in Mexico in March. And I, 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 was, I thought as this pandemic started to take hold around the world, I was going to stay in this little corner of Mexico and, and wait it out. I thought maybe a couple of months, three months, right. I would do the project. I could live in a little hacienda, which I was renting in Mexico. And then I get an email. My flight was canceled with no alternatives. All of a sudden you get an email saying, you don't have a flight back to New York. So then so. you decided, I better get back to the States? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> As okay. borders were really looking like they were about to close, yeah. I was like, well, maybe it's not such a good idea to stay in a little town in Oaxaca, Mexico. In Oaxaca. Yeah, right. in the southern state of Oaxaca. Where you, where you were working. And we're going to talk briefly about your, uh, the work that you do. I just wanted to kind of catch everybody up if they didn't hear the previous podcast. In our uh, other conversation, we got into some depth on de- into some depth on how your multifaceted life led you to building houses in disaster areas, and now in disaster areas during a pandemic. So a quick review of your life. Here, here it is. This here is your is. life, John <laughs> In wow. 30 seconds. I'm excited. Grew up in California, worked on Wall Street, then in films in Hollywood. You were a producer of television commercials, and while in LA, you built up an Achilles running club for blind athletes. Worked for Habitat for Humanities, led travel groups to Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Ethiopia, and China, and did some anthropological research on a remote Pacific island. Wow. And at about that time, you founded Micro International. That's is that concise. It? <laughs> it sounds pretty fabulous, it, actually. You led does. a really this life, is your life. A, a charmed yeah. life. I feel that I have, and I've led multiple lives. I have had so many different stages. And while I was in California in this lockdown, um, did a lot of work personally, uh, spiritual progress, which I've always been interested in. And someone asked me, "Are you okay during you know with whatever happens in the world?" And I was like. I am because I'm, I've lived so many lives. Not that my life is over by any means. There's no. plenty more to come. But uh, I feel really lucky and, and feel like I've had such a, a diverse and ver- variety of uh, experiences. Yeah. Well, we, we thought for this show, uh, for this conversation, that we would catch up on what's going on with you now, recent experiences with a special focus on how you deal with what you deal with in your in your work spiritual work Mm. but also your building work how do you do it in a third world countries during a pandemic well rebecca and i were talking about that uh just before the show started and it's it definitely adds a layer of difficulty especially for my organization because we're so tiny um it's really me i initiate all the projects and the only other person who's really doing projects right now as a microwave employee, technically, is our full-time project manager in Nepal. Right, and I was going to ask you about Nabina? Nabina, yeah. Nabina right. Dual. Dual. That's your project manager? Yeah, she lives in a town called Bhaktapur, which is in the Kathmandu Valley of Nepal. So you mentioned her. Tell us about Nabina. First of all, another lucky and amazingly fortuitous uh, thing that's happened to me and microwave for our work 
is that I was doing a project in Nepal in 2015 and it was because or 2016 because they had had an earthquake there in 2015 which destroyed 650,000 homes and I went there a year later and rebuilt a home for a, one family in the urban environment where no one really was working. A lot of organizations were doing things in Nepal, but they were in the mountains and in the villages. But the urban areas of Kathmandu were decimated. And it was so difficult to build there. Uh, houses, 300-year-old houses sharing walls. And some of them fell down, others didn't. It was a very difficult environment to work. So I was doing a project there, and Nabina was my interpreter. And um, she did such a great job for me and Microwave that when I was leaving, I said to Nabina, what are you doing after this? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, if we train you up a little bit, to say spend six months every day on the phone or Skype or some way, uh, would you be interested in being an, the in-country project manager for Nepal, for Microaid? And she, of course, said yes. That's great. And That's she's great. been she's been your on-site manager for years now. Yeah, since 2016, and she's done I don't know how many projects we've done in Nepal back to back, probably six or seven, maybe eight. Home building homes. We did. Full home constructions, we've done a number of full home constructions that she's overseen and I'm overseeing her. And we did home uh, retrofits and repairs, which are actually much more difficult than just starting, starting from, from scratch. scratch. Right, right. Huh. I think wow. we, we need to back up this a little bit yeah. because uh, we, we haven't really defined what micro-aid international is and what, and what your goals are. My understanding is that Micro-Aid International is a nonprofit that goes into third world disaster areas after the NGOs, the government agencies, the news medias have left. And your group then rebuilds single homes by assessing the local economy and resources. Is that a fair summary of Micro-Aid? You guys are on it. You guys have your summaries yeah. <laughs> right on the money. Uh, yes, my, uh, my one-liner is very similar to that. Uh, Micro-Aid uh, rebuilds hou permanent houses for disaster survivors after the world's attention has moved on. Right. And I emphasize permanent houses because there are organizations that go in and, and deliver much needed tents, temporary shelters, those kind of things. So it's the first wave that kind of brings very, very important aid to just help people survive what just happened. Then everybody leaves and nobody talks about this anymore and then you go in there and you say, hey guys, anybody need a house? <laughs> Pretty much. And man, we're, we can just take our pick because very few organizations do the long-term recovery, which is what we do to get people back to self-sufficiency and to get them into a permanent house that will last for generations to come. And like you said, there's an absolute need for the emergency responders. They've got to dig people out of the rubble, they've got to deliver medical attention, right. they've got to deliver the temporary tents. The temporary shelters are necessary. But then what? Those right. organizations move on and because it's not their mission to do what microaid does. So you, I mean, they're dealing with like a huge picture, a huge problem. You come in in a very small way and have huge impact on individual families 
not just those families, but those families' generations to come. Because you're building these houses that will be for their sons, and they'll bring in their, their, their children will, will come there. Because that's the way those cultures work. They're very insular families, is that right? Absolutely, that's exactly right. Um, the, if families have a house, they are in it for generations. They're not going to move, they're not going to build a new one, and that's why when a house is destroyed by a natural disaster in those cultures, there's no insurance, there's no FEMA for good or ill, um, there's no uh, any kind of support usually from the government. It, when these people lose their house, that's it. And when we show up, they're sitting in the rubble of this, their houses yeah. and no one is, is going to help them. And um, they may have gotten maybe a tent or some tarps from USAID or some other well-meaning organization, a necessary organization, but no one's going to build them a full-blown house, which is what we do. How do you decide who to build a house for? It must be hard to make that kind of choice because there must be many, many hundreds of families that in a disaster that need help and you can only limit it to one at a time very based difficult. on your resources. Yeah, it's very difficult to uh, make the choice. Uh, I do uh, research before I go to the, con the country, contacting people who have worked in the emergency response. I have a very deep network now um, of emergency respond organizations. Um, that I talk to and they say, oh yeah, we worked in this town, there are all these families that need help, we gave them a tent, we gave them bottled water, but they need to a permanent house. So I'm talking to those people, I, I create a list out of the, from those people of about uh, a dozen or two dozen families, and then I go to the country and I meet those families and assess their situation, uh, the, our ability to help them, because we don't just do, we're not going to do it halfway. We're going to build the house and we're going to finish it and we're going to stay there until it's done. So it has to be the decision made on how big the family is, how if it's multi-generational already, and those are the kind of things we look at and whether we can actually, we have the budget to actually do it because as opposed to just delivering a small, you know, bottled water and stuff, if we work for, for one family, like Alan was saying, uh, it's a full commitment, and these are not uh, cheap. So, right. so, so, in other words, yeah. you would pick a family that you could, or, or out of all the others, you could have the the most impact on because of the so many people that are connected with this family. Maybe yes, that's one of the criteria for yeah. sure. How many people are in the family? How, how big an impact? When I was in Nepal the first time, I was interviewing families and and people that um, I had been referred to. And one of them was this 80-year-old woman, and she was super needy and, uh, and nice, and her house was in sham she was sitting in the rubble of her home. And I had to make a very difficult decision not to help her because um, instead we helped a family of 12 with young kids. There was tr it was a three-generation family, older people, medium-aged people, and right. kids. And that older woman, 80 years old, I wish we could have helped her, but it wasn't going to be the impact that we need to have right. from microwave. Do you ever get pushback from uh, from a family? Why did you pick us? Why did you pick them? They're no good. We're better than they are. <laughs> oh, that's a very difficult situation. If you go into a community, and we, we work very hard to avoid this, uh, imbalancing the community, creating discord. Right. Um, in Peru, we really lucked out with our family. Uh, they were very well liked in the community. They had a number of disabled children, and so the community actually wanted us to help them. They said, "Help this family oh, first." Oh, that's nice. Yeah, 
It was That's great. That's great. Yeah. But it doesn't always work out that way, I imagine. No, and off, so often, this is an interesting thing that happened. Often it's, it's uh, first of all, it, we've never created any imbalance, major imbalance. But then when the community finds out what we're doing, if they're, they're close, they'll start bothering us and me in particular um you know to give them a house to build them a house of and course. they're like why not yeah. <laughs> yeah the mayor of the town is like yeah, yeah what about me man <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly <right. Yeah. laughs> so but a, a weird thing happened in nepal again a very interesting culture this family was had been in this neighborhood for a long time generations and the neighborhood had built up around them wealthier people started moving into the neighborhood so their house was the only house that collapsed because it was a 300 year old house and when i came in to build their new house for them the the wealthier neighbors were actually pissed they were like oh we thought we were going to get rid of the hillbillies we thought their house fell down and they'd have to move but now you're coming in and building them a house wow and they're going to we'll never get rid of them we'll never get rid of them <laughs> And it was really shocking to me. I was like, and they wanted to buy their land. It was so interesting. It was a, it was a, a weird reversal of what I thought. Because they didn't like that fam, that particular family. They didn't like the hillbillies still living wow, there. that's horrible. But you followed through with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we so built what, them a really nice house. What's it better than the, the, their neighbors? Yes, yeah. as, as, as nice as their neighbors. You keep up with these people, too. You, you yes. stay in touch with them. Yeah. Um, you, you don't do repairs on their houses, do you? No, once we hand over the keys... That's it. We've built them a, a very beautiful and and co up to code, uh, up to U.S. codes, like earthquake codes. Oh, okay, uh, great. U up to U.S. US codes. standards. Not oh, yeah. necessarily the codes of that particular country. No, beyond usually. Beyond. Way beyond usually. Wow. So up to earthquake codes, up to wind shear codes, like in, in the Philippines where we did work in the typhoon area. We build that that way, and because you know what, I don't I don't want to go back. I don't want to have to do it again, and I don't want the families to be uh, in danger. So um, we hand them the keys. That we stay till that moment. We make sure the lights flip on if there if there are lights, which there usually are, and uh, we give them the keys. But we follow up at least. We're the world is so connected uh, that we are in constant contact. I'm in constant contact with all the families we've helped. Can, can you, um, do you know how many houses you have built over the years that Micro 8 has been in existence? Uh, it's somewhere around a dozen at this point. Right. We've been in existence doing projects for 10 years since 2010. Right. right. Um, now you would yeah. look and say 10, it's like 10, you know? Yeah. But that's an enormous amount of effort. One of the things you know, I found on your website, by the way, the website looks really good. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, a big improvement for the last time we. Yes. We talked. It's really clean. More and glamorous. More glamorous. Did you get some help in Hollywood? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, all those out-of-work uh, graphic designers. There you yeah. go. Yeah. You quote, it's a quote from you on the website, quote, just because you can't help everyone doesn't mean you shouldn't help anyone. Oh, yeah. I love and that quote. I, I think that's, yeah, I, and it's I great. think that's kind of like, and so many of us, we see this, we see something that's impossible to fix. It's like, 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 like climate change. So people say, well, forget about it. We can't fix it. Right. Um, but that's not how you approach these problems. No, not from a personal level and not from a microwave level. Uh, if there's something that can be done that I can do to help people, uh, I'll do it, which is why I started microwave. A little more, I could personally not have built houses, full-blown houses for people um, by myself. So I started an organization where I raise money uh, from generous donors in the United States and other countries, and I spend it on 
building houses for people who would never be able to rebuild their own houses. Right. Well, it's like the starfish story, right? You know the starfish. Oh, yes, absolutely. The sea star. Yeah, the and starfish, starfish. Where the there's star, yeah. someone's throwing starfish back in. Right. Yeah. Someone's and Trying and to and save and them. Yeah and, yeah, and someone comes along and says, why are you bothering? You can't say, you can't, you can't save all these stars, sea right. stars. And the, and the guy says, well, you know, who cares? And he, he says, well, this one cares. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, there, there's another quote. I haven't put it on the website yet, which is, um, microwave may not be changing the world, but for the families we help, we're changing their world. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, nice. and, and I, I just realized, just as we've been talking, you're changing their world into generations. Exactly. Yeah. Who knows way, the way, multiplier? Way past you know, our own time. Absolutely. It's good because you're building these really well-structured houses. Yes, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Um, oh, I'll tell you a quick little story okay. about, about you know, doing one family at a time, and, and if you can't help everyone, you shouldn't not help someone. I had a donor once, pretty big donor, and uh, I'm always, you know, super polite with my donors, but she decided not to give money to MicroEd anymore, and one of the reasons she said was well what you, you're doing seems to be just a drop in the bucket mm -hmm. uh, well yeah. I went home being who I am and I looked up how many drops does it take to fill a bucket and a five gallon bucket takes 52,000 drops so I called her back and I said hey give me 52,000 more donations and I'll do a bucket for you there you go <laughs> did and did she did no, it work? <laughs> no uh, that didn't work I think she was pissed off uh, <laughs> no she, yeah. it was fine but, uh, but the, you know, you can look at it from lots of different angles. And the only angle that I ever look at it from is these families are now okay. And they weren't before MicroAid got there. Yeah. You have a lot of projects, obviously, under your belt. You've, you've done it. What are you working on now? Right. Well, before, uh, before I got back, I, I was in Mexico. <laughs> let me, let me yeah, start that again. Yeah, let's rewind, rewind. Yeah. Yeah, you were telling um, me the story, I yeah. think. Yeah. So... We were initiating a pro new projects in Mexico. Uh, there had been an uh, earthquake in 2017 called the Chiapas earthquake, and that's a, the southernmost state in Mexico, right next to Oaxaca. And in Oaxaca, that's where most of the damage was. And so I'm working with a young architect in a town in Oaxaca state called Huichitan, and we're going to help a number of families by rebuilding their houses based on this architect's design using traditional layouts and traditional materials, but upgraded to withstand future earthquakes. Wow. So we were in southern, I was in southern Mexico in March uh, when the whole pandemic thing started to come down. I thought I was going to be able to stay there um, and weather this uh, storm and it just turned out that it wasn't going to be the case was uh, the pandemic obviously went worldwide it, it has affected every corner of the planet and luckily I got kind of got out of Mexico when I did because borders were shutting down planes were being canceled. you needed to get home I needed to get home to the United States yes. and all of a sudden I thought well maybe if even if I if I got this disease for whatever reason um, would I want to be in some teeny town in southern Mexico yeah. as opposed to being in the United States? Right. So you really can't do your work right now. Well, he can't be there. Right? I mean, is your work getting done? Is, is someone, is it right. continuing in Oaxaca? Right. Well, the architect is moving it along and we're, I'm moving along. And I have to make the big decision soon whether to allow him and trust him to start the projects without me there. And there's precedent for this because MicroAid has a full-time project manager in Nepal who I trust uh, and 
I oversee on a daily basis we're in communication and she's done uh, more than a half a dozen projects uh, since 2016 when I was there and hired her to be our full-time project manager. So that's always been the model for a scale-up for MicroAid anyway. Right. Hiring local project managers and me overseeing them at least uh, when I can't be there. And then you can fund ongoing projects. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, Nepal's happening. Uh, we've got it. We're in the middle of it. We were. We had started a project in January, rebuilding a home, a big home for um, a multi-generation family, two brothers actually. It's almost. It is two families really, and uh, they went into lockdown. And let me tell you something. Nepal's lockdown made our lockdown look like uh, Disney World. I was going to ask you about that because you have more. Uh, under, you have a more feel of what's going on in the rest of the world. And I, I, I looked up on the CDC, and all the countries that you have your, your, your houses in, they're all like level three, don't go there, you know, you're not going to get treated if you get it. Um, that it's, I mean, all of them, in, in, in Nepal, in, in, in Myanmar, Peru, the Philippines, Samoa, Sri Lanka, Paraguay. I mean, yes. Peru, all I'm, of them. I'm laughing because it's so sad. But that's the fact. You know, microwave is operated in mostly the poorest countries in the world and in the disaster zones. I think actually you listed Samoa, but I think Samoa it was so isolated that they don't have very many cases. Mm. They lock down, they just close their borders. Yeah. It actually said risk is unknown. Risk is unknown. Well, <laughs> Because it, no one can get in. Exactly, and a lot of these countries you named, I'm in contact with people in every one of those countries you named, microwave families, my other contacts there, and you know, they go in and out of lockdown. They're in, in Nepal, my project manager, our project manager, Nabina, she's worried about this because she says, well, cases are rising. I said, well, how many cases are there? She said, well, there are about 1,000. I said, well, that's because they, they, they had 1,000 tests. You know, that's the other thing. We have no idea what's going on in these countries because they don't test. Oh. They don't we don't test in the United States. So it's 1,000 positive. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have yeah. to change the way you, you, you do this now? Um, at least until we get, I mean, and, and, and these countries that you're working in, they're going to get the vaccine last. Yeah, they're going to get the vaccine I last. mean, you must have been thinking about this. How, you, how is microwave going to continue its work in, a, in an ongoing pandemic in third world countries? Right. Very and how are you going to get there? I mean, you, have to, you can't walk there. Right. Uh, well, this is the, the, the calculations we're making right now. In Nepal, we're going to continue because we have someone on the ground there full time anyway. She's, you know, she's our project manager for the last four years. So she'll continue working there. They've gone in and out of lockdown a number of times. And um, one of the things that happened was we were in the middle of building this house. We, we had an open, uh, open site, as, it, as they say. It wasn't weather tight. And uh, Nepal uh, said, we're locking down. That was it, the next day. You had no prep, you had no time to do anything. So the weather could have devastated that site, I guess. It, it did, actually, and we, it cost us about $6,000 more because a couple of our walls that we had built were destroyed by rain and op being open to the elements over two months when they were locked down. And at one point, Nabina, so in Nepal, you, their lockdown was like this. You stayed home. Everyone stayed home. You were allowed to go out of your house for one hour, from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., or from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Sounds like China, actually. They did the same thing, yeah. very similar. Yeah. Hard lockdown. 
and yeah. each household got a pass, one pass, and you could go out during those hours to go to the market. And there were police checkpoints, and they were not joking around. So, so how did people get their food, though? Was that one hour when they went to the market? Yes, okay. and they had to have okay. their pass, the one person so from the family. So who's operating the market? So they that's the essential workers. They were allowed out, essential okay. workers. Okay. But even that was the limited. The yeah. food. And even that was limited. It, it was... And at one point during the lockdown, my, our project manager, Nabina, I was on the phone with her every day, and, and she said, I'm going to go try to see what's happened at the work site, see what's happened there. Maybe we could put some tarps up or something. I said, okay, tomorrow you'll go. She said, I'm going to take our pass, my family's pass. I'm going to carry a bag of vegetables, and so... Um, and I'm going to go and check it out. I said, great, let me know. So she's like going undercover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, she was that's like, amazing. She was so, so, it was creative, actually. And so the next day, I'm talking to her. I said, so how did it go? What did the site look like? She said, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, John. I hope you're not mad at me. I'm like, what? I, I said, why? She said, well, I was going to the site, and I was approaching a police checkpoint, and I saw that up ahead that they were beating people. And, and so, oh I, so I turned around. Yes. So I, she said, I turned around and went home. Is that okay? Jeez. I'm like, oh, Nabina, it's okay. She's so dedicated. So, oh, my gosh. Yes. So I said, yeah, you do not have to get beaten at a police checkpoint uh, try to see the site. So she went another time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so wow. How are you calculating this in, into moving forward with microaid? I know. Alan, you're asking the, the tough question. That's why I've been avoiding it. No, <laughs> but we are actually well, moving. thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, we're thinking about it. And, and it's working. Um, in, we're so small. This is the good news that we build one, two, three, four houses a year at most. So with our Nepal projects continuing, continuing, we can do two projects a year there. That's that's a good that's a pretty good micro aid year if those are really big houses for big families. And then the Mexico project is going to move forward. I, I again I have to take a leap of faith, but I'm vetting this architect very very thoroughly, and I've been there and I've met him and his family and his. Uh, you know, co-workers. So I'm feeling confident that I can uh, that I can trust him to start the project. Are, are you are you training them, or do you feel they already know how to take care of themselves? I notice you're wearing an N95 mask, um, so you're taking care of yourself. But how do you know they're taking care of themselves? Well, that's such a good question. Um, as you know, because you know me, uh, I've, uh, I do have a pretty high level of concern beyond the work, of course. And uh, last time I went to Nepal to check on all the work we had done there, I, brought, I just happened to bring a box of N95 so they could wear them on the work site and give them to all our workers, not because of COVID, just because it's dusty and, and polluted there. And so Nabina had a whole big box of N95s, which I told her as soon as this started, everybody on the worksite gets one, or, or as many as they need, and they, everyone wears a mask. That even, but that's our worksite. We weren't able to control something that happened uh, last month, and two of our workers got COVID. Mm. And, they and they went to the hospital and they tested positive. Neither one of them had serious symptoms. But we shut down the worksite for 14 days, and we made the big decision to keep paying everyone, which was also an interesting thing because it, it highlighted what's going on in the world. How long do you pay people to not to work? Right. And who can afford that? How long? Can and how can you not pay them? And how can you not pay them? That's, that's right. 
how can you not pay them? Right. And because your your building of your house is really um, a drawing from the economy of that place, and you're adding. Uh, so it's not only just building a house, but you're adding in that moment. You're hiring workers. Something into the economy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then they start depending on that. Yeah. That buying power and the, and the yeah. people sell stuff. So that stuff. becomes part of your aid. This, this. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Rebecca. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I had two two f questions that follow up on that. One is you clearly, in this moment of pandemic, uh, you need more money than you than you have needed before. Is that right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, I'd like to keep the pace of projects going at this. At, we were growing. You know, one we used to. I used to do one project a year, one one house or two houses a year, and now we're doing multiple three, four, five houses a God year. Bless you. Uh, mm. And now we might have to scale it back. I mean, preferably it would be like more money, and especially if we have to pay workers uh, when they're not working. But And and we'll do that at MicroAid until we can't do that yeah. anymore. Yeah. So how are the governments um, in the countries that you've been working in, how are they handling the pandemic? Do you think they're doing a good job? I think the countries that were corrupt and inefficient and... Uh, and selfish. Wait, but we're not talking about the United States here. <laughs> oh, I thought we were. Sorry. No, no, no. Okay, no. I'll talk about the third world countries then. Thank you. Uh, this is a third world country. Yeah, I know. We, we, I have noticed. It's, it's shocking. It's shocking. There are a lot of similarities. Uh, I read somewhere that Nepal is like country number 153 out of like 194. Or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The most, uh, in most corrupt countries. Oh. And, but I think now, um, I think the United States is 154. Wow. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, okay. No, okay. not that bad yet. Oh. Fake news. Yeah. Yeah. Fake news, exactly. It's coming. Yeah. Um, but uh, microwave always works as much as possible under the radar. We don't like to make our presence known to governments or municipal or right. because then you're in another level of uh, layer of bureaucracy, graft, corruption, payoffs maybe, and we kind of try to avoid any of that and again we're small enough that we can and I always wanted to stay that way I wanted to wanted to create this organization to be that way and I wanted to stay that way because that's how I can be the most efficient by not having to deal with that um, we're, we're we're all under a lot of stress um, you've got great ideas and great projects that you're doing um, and you're a very positive you seem a very positive person you're a spiritual person um, how do you keep your spirits up? How do you uh, and how are you feeling? I mean, ab about the work that you're doing and oh, yeah, I, I, mean, thought you I thought you were asking me about my persistent cough and headache and, <laughs> no. and high fever. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you have you 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 haven't had COVID. No, I haven't. No, and you seem perfectly healthy healthy to yes. me. Yes, I mean, is, I, it I taking, is this taking a toll on you at all? Absolutely. I'm heartbroken on a daily basis. I don't show it, and I have uh, tools that I've acquired over many, many years. of. Maybe you uh, could share those with us. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to get everyone through this. Um, uh, as you know, Alan, and, and Rebecca, I think you're on my mailing list, too. During the COVID time, I had, I've had i done a lot of emails that aren't just yep. about microaid. They're about how to handle yourselves, making a schedule, and learning meditation and finding a you know trying to look see the bigger picture of all this and I'm not particularly religious but if there's a spiritual aspect to it and um, whatever good can come out of this what other values are we gonna start to look at um, so I, I try to bring that into my work I try and bring that into my personal life thank you yeah. thank you 
I think I think that's a good uh, place to uh, thank you, John Ross of Microaid International. We've been talking with John Ross, the founder and executive director and project manager and worker in the field for Microaid International. John, it was great catching up with you, and um, I think that what you do is amazing. We think that what you do is amazing, and congratulations, and keep doing it. Thank you very much. And, th and thank you for coming out to Ellington and in the park here in Riverside Park. Uh, the sun's going down. The weather is magnificent. We're here Look in the middle sky. fall. The sky is gorgeous. It's a great spot, and uh, hopefully we'll get out here again. Uh, email us at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite bar, if there are a favorite bar anymore. And um, we may see you there. Have a great conversation with you. And thank you again, John. Thank you. Thank you.